0: So um, this is actually my very first catechesis attending here because I've been downstairs this entire semester. So I have no clue what has happened. Um, so you are more knowledgeable than me. And anytime anybody talks about CS Lewis, uh, the person that's talking has to realize that there are experts in the room. Um, so I appreciate your expertise as well as, as, we, as we talk about Lewis and figure all reading uh, together. Um, So, as I understand my charge, uh, I am to uh, talk about Judith Wolfe's chapter, which is entitled A Richer Mythology, C.S. Lewis and Figural Reading, and she's a professor of philosophical theology at St. Andrews, and it really is a wonderful uh, and wonderfully short chapter. She packs a lot in, in in the time. Um, But I wanted to start off uh, with just talking about Lewis a little bit more generally, and just to hear a little bit about your readings of Lewis uh, as well, since most of you have probably read, read Lewis. Um, and I just love this quote from Surprised by Joy uh, that really speaks to Lewis's childhood. He writes, I am a product of endless books. My father bought all the books he read and never got rid of any of them. <laughs> there were books in the study, books in the drawing room, books in the cloak room, books too deep in the great bookcase on the landing, books in the bedroom, books piled as high as my shoulder in the cistern attic, books of all kinds reflecting every transient stage of my parents' interests, books readable and unreadable, books suited for a child, and books most emphatically not. (laughs) But then, nothing was forbidden me. So there wasn't censorship in the Lewis household. Um, In the seemingly endless rainy afternoons, I took volume after volume from the shelves. I had always the same certainty of finding a book that was new to me as a man who walks into a field has of finding a new blade of grass, (laughs) which is uh, just such a wonderful way uh, to grow up. And Lewis uh, wrote elsewhere that his ideal happiness would be to uh, be always convalescent, with some small illness (laughs) and to be seated by the sea, reading books for eight hours a day. (laughs) Yes, if we could only be so so lucky. He actually thought a lot about reading Um, and his comments on reading aren't for the most part organized in a single area of his corpus. He does have books like an experiment. Criticism, which was written in 1961, which is all about reading, um, and it's a wonderful book, but little comments about reading will just crop up all over the place, in everything he's, he's working on. And I mean, if we have time, I'll talk about that uh, a little bit more in the, uh, the end. We, I mean, we could de- devote a whole series to Lewis on reading, um, really, but I, I really want to focus, uh, focus on Wolf. Uh, before we do that, I want to I hear a little bit, uh, or have you talk to each other for just a bit. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm just curious about your own experiences reading Lewis. Um, what, what was your first encounter with reading Lewis like? Um, I wonder if you could turn and chat with people about that. I, I'll give you mine first, so you're not thrown <laughs> off. Um, so, I don't remember how old I was, but I was reading The Chronicles of Narnia for the first time. And I remember uh, that I, I couldn't put it down, so much so that I, my, I was sore. My body just got sore from sitting in one position. So I, 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 I remember reading throughout the house and kind of working my way throughout the house and, and going up the stairs and down the stairs with the book in, in hand. I was so immersed uh, in reading. What has, what has been your experiences reading Lewis? And it's helpful, I think, to come up with a kind of metaphor. What is it like, or simile? What's it like to read Lewis I don't know, I think I was probably six or seven. I can't remember. Yeah, okay, go ahead. All right. Uh, we, I, I mean, we could just do that the whole time. And that would probably be, probably be for the best. <laughs> um, so maybe a few people uh, uh, want to share what their experiences encountering Lewis uh, was like. You can't, obviously you can't do this wrong. Um, what, what, what has been your experience reading, reading Lewis? So sweet. Good. Any, anyone else? Experiences reading, reading Lewis? I'll share. Yeah. Not my first reading of Lewis, but reading that to be a strength. Yeah, great, cool. Others? Anybody else? Experiences reading? That's, that's wonderful. Um, Lewis had his own uh, thoughts about reading and what reading does. And I want to read you my, my, one of my favorite quotes on Lewis' reading in, in just a second. Um, but I was saying earlier that so much of what he is talking about, you know, read, reading explicitly comes up in his work, but it also comes up implicitly uh, because, as you know, Lewis writes portal quest fantasies. So if you think about fantasy literature, um, Farrah Mendelssohn has divided, up, divided fantasy stories up into four different types. Um, she talks about portal quest fantasies, where a character is from the real world, the primary world, into a secondary fantastical world by passing through a wardrobe-like portal. Right? So that's what Lewis does. There are other types. There's intrusive, where the secondary world comes and attacks, or comes into the primary world, like a space invasion. Um, and there's immersive, where you're always in the secondary world. There is no primary world. That's Lord of the Rings. And then there's liminal fantasies, where you're not sure whether you're in the primary or secondary world. Lewis writes portal quest fantasies. And because of that, um, because the characters are passing through a portal, all of those stories can be considered a kind of metaphor for reading, right? Right? Um, So, they're all commentaries on reading in a way, and if you think about that, one of my favorite examples of that happens in the the Wood Between Worlds, um, in The Magician's Nephew, right? Polly and Diggory, with the help of these rings, go to an intermediary place where there are all these lakes that could take you to other worlds. And so, if a wardrobe is like a book, the Wood Between Worlds is like a library. Um, And so, it's all about reading uh, in some ways. Okay. So that's Lewis on reading. Here's my favorite quote on Lewis reading, and then we'll get into figural reading. I don't have this on your handout. Literary experience, he writes, and this is from Experiment and Criticism. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. Literary experience heals the wound without undermining the privilege of individuality. There are mass emotions which heal the wound, but they destroy the privilege. In them our separate selves are pooled and we sink back into sub-individuality. But in reading great literature, I become a thousand people and yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with myriad eyes, but it is still I who see. Here as in worship, in love, and in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself and am never more myself than when I do. You get, get to experience otherness without losing ourselves. It's really, really wonderful. Um, okay, so let's talk about figural reading. Um, a quick refresher on figural reading, um, and this is on your handout. Um, so, so what are we talking about when we're talking about figural reading? This comes from the introduction to the book that we're looking at this uh, year, All Thy Lights Combine. Um, And uh, this is uh, what the editors write. Figural readers hope to uncover the ways that God's creative work integrates all reality by showing how particular parts of scripture, God's own words, interlock with others, often across times and books and characters through similitude, resonance, And moral form. So there there are these patterns, there are these forms, there are these shapes um, that connect uh, to one another. Figural readers receive biblical words in canonical context. This is really important for what I'm about to say about Lewis and what uh, Wolf argues about Lewis. Uh, Figural readers receive biblical words in canonical context and pay special attention to the way these words acquire theological and especially Christological import. Um, I was thinking about a, a good illustration, and I was actually thinking about this during the Advent season, and I thought about the Jesse tree. Um, the Jesse tree is a, a great hermeneutical practice for figural reading. That's what it is. Um, so I brought our Jesse tree, and of course, these, two, these are two ornaments. We have Moses, right, in the burning bush, and here we have Isaac represented by the lamb. And in these shapes, right, we see Christology, right? In the burning bush, we see divinity that does not totally consume the natural world, right? We see incarnation in a sense, right? And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a figure, it's a shape, it's a pattern of it. And of course, here we see a sacrifice, right? A sacrifice in the place of another. And so every every story in our uh, in the Jesse Tree book that we have in our home always ends that way with a kind of figural reading. So this is Isaac, the end of this Little blurb for the day says, tells the story of Isaac, and then it says, years later, God would send someone else from Abraham's family to take our place, right? That's a great figural reading. It's a type of Christ um, that we see. Okay, now, that's the refresher on figural reading. Now, let's talk about Lewis's figural readings. Um, What's interesting about Lewis's figural readings is, and this is not my point, all of this is Wolf's. Okay, so now we're in Wolf, okay, just so we're all clear. Um, Lewis's figural readings extend beyond the canonical context. Um, so this is what Wolf says. Lewis grants to biblical types only slight privilege over pagan myths. He sees God's election of the Jewish people manifested in promises, covenants, laws, and do- God's dwelling with Israel, but Lewis pays little attention to the specific figurations of the Old Testament. So it's not, not about doing what the Jesse tree does, or it's not about doing what our mural does, right? The mural is another figural reading, right? We say the tree of life is the cross, all right? Or uh, the, you know, um, Psalm 23, that, that's the good shepherd, uh, or that, that lamb around Jesus's neck, is, it looks like it's bound. It's also a sacrifice, it's all, There's often a figural reading wrapped up in that. It. It's not what Lewis is doing. Always, Lewis is saying there are figures in other places outside Scripture that point us to Christ. So, um, Wolf makes a point to note that this is not uh, along the lines of the thinking of like Karl Barth, who says you really need revelation uh, to get to Christ. Lewis says there are all kinds of other pointers that can get you there, and we wanna look at, look at some of those other, uh, other pointers in right now, actually. Um, so one of the pointers uh, uh, that we see is nature. Uh, nature presents us with figures that point to Christ. And Lewis actually does this all, all the time, and I've given you there a passage from uh, Lewis's book, Miracles. This is what he writes. In the descent and reascent, and this is, a, he's talking now about the incarnation and the ascension, everyone will recognize a familiar pattern. There's that, that's the key, right? A familiar pattern, a thing written all over the world. It is the pattern of all vegetable life. It must belittle itself into something hard, small, and death-like. It must fall into the ground. Thence, the new life re The doctrine of the Incarnation, if accepted, puts the principle even more emphatically at the center. The pattern is there in nature because it was first there in God. So Lewis can look at the natural world and say, oh, yeah, in in the death and reemergence, right, or in the burial and ascent of a seed, we see something that's a lot like like God. Um, So it's a pointer. Nature, uh, figural readings of nature. Figural readings of myth is the second one. Uh, a second uh, second uh, bullet point there. The heart of Christianity is a myth, which is also a fact. And this is from his great uh, essay, Myth Became Fact. The old myth of the dying God, without ceasing to be myth, comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history. It happens at a particular date in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. We pass from a balder or a, an osiris, these dying gods, dying nobody knows where or when, to a historical person crucified under Pontius Pilate. So we, we look at myths, uh, Lewis says, and we don't say, oh, uh, Jesus is just a myth like all of these others, so it must not be true. We say, these are myths which are somehow pointing toward the true myth, which became fact. And so the myths are figures. He does a figural reading of myths which point to Christ. Um, So, like in nature, like the life of God is written into it. In myth, the life of God is is written into it. Um, This is true uh, for emotion and desire as well. So, um, if you've read Lewis's uh, auto, spiritual Autobiography, Surprised by Joy. This is how he talks about joy, right? Joy is this longing, it's not, ha- it's not happiness, it's this longing, sometimes painful, a little bit pleasurable, um, and it's, it's a pointer. And Lewis spends his life, or his early part of his life, kind of questing after this longing. He wants to feel this thing. Um, and he realizes that it's just the pointer. He's been looking after the pointer the whole time. But even in this, right, joy that suggests that there's a kind of fit, a lack of a fit between who we are, our frame, and something else, something larger that we can't quite access, and uh, so it's a kind of figure that's pointing towards something else. All right. So, um, and he's he's got a whole bunch of other examples in reason as well. So um, all of these things are are um, are figures for Lewis. So we're moving outside of the canonical context. Wolf's other point is that Lewis's figural readings are often informed by the liturgical year. All right, so he's reading scripture in the context of the the liturgical year of worship. And to do that, I thought we would engage in an activity. (laughs) Okay, so um, point number two. In his reflections on the Psalms, Lewis finds the natural setting for allegorical readings of scripture in the liturgical year of the church. The allegorical power of Psalm 45 and 11 for Lewis is revealed not in critical study or even in private devotion, but in their appointment in the Book of Common Prayer for the matins of Christmas Day and of Ascension. So the power of the figural reading lies in the fact of when it's read. So here's what you have to do to go back into your groups. And now you need to read Psalm 45 together. And then here's the question. What meanings of Psalm 45 emerge when we read it in light of the nativity? (laughs) Okay? Okay. What meanings of Psalm 45 emerge when you read it in light of the manger? Go. Prayer books. Yeah, prayer, it's in the prayer books, too. Read it. All, read, you got to read it aloud first. You just got a public reading of Scripture. So the question—just to remind you of what the question (laughs) is—the question is: How does? Oh, sorry. What meanings emerge when we consider Psalm 45 in light of the Nativity, the birth of Jesus, the manger scene? What meanings emerge when we read this on Christmas morning? It's tough. Do your best. All right, Ooh. again, that's a class, that's a whole class period. Um, that's so rich, isn't it? That's like a very rich activity. Um, what'd y'all talk about? Um, can, I, can I call people? What'd, what'd y'all talk about? What'd y'all talk about? Wanna share? You're, you're reading like Lewis. Let me, let me read you Wolf's summary. There's, there's more to say about this, but let me read you Wolf's summary of Lewis on this point. On Christmas, when our thoughts are primarily on the lowliness of Christ's birth and the miracle of divine condescension, Psalm 45 reminds us of the splendor concealed in the crowded stable. Isn't that great? <laughs> That's it, right? That, uh, what else? What else did you talk about? What did you all talk about? <laughs> that was really good. Well, no, I was I was kind of first uh, four, you know, in your Majesty, right out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness oh. and righteousness, and that means what is that? Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, just so major. Yes, it's in some ways it's totally unexpected for, a, for for a king, and yet not not when we consider the whole of the biblical narrative. Yeah, others, others, other thoughts. What's that? Who is the princess? Who is the princess? <laughs> Matt knows. <laughs> back there, yeah, yeah. Do you want to say more about that or? Yes, great. Yes. I think the princess could also be all of us. Ah, mm. That's one form of each other. Yes. Yeah. I, I saw that in a little different way, but the same thing is the Gentiles are really natural. Mm. I mean, the the, the yeah. daughter is tired. Yeah. In the opening up of the Gentiles. Company. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that these figural readings do is, especially the allegorical ones, is they're meant to be encouragement in faith, uh, right? So um, I, just, I just find great encouragement from hearing these readings and thinking about the ways in which Old and New Testament and all of the scriptures lock together so tightly. So, you know, sometimes we hear, you know, the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God, and really nothing could be further from the truth how, how, how tightly these things are woven together. Um, okay. Um, thank you for doing that activity. Let's. Uh, we have a little bit more time, so let's turn the page. Um, so, we've been, you know, those are allegorical readings. Uh, Wolf gives us two examples from Lewis: a moral reading, a, a reading that really prompts us uh, to 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 write living, to living well, to living the good life, and an anagogical reading. It's like an eschatological reading, a, a reading that encourages us. Uh, helps us to hope, right? So allegorical readings are meant to uh, strengthen our faith, and moral readings are meant to strengthen our love, and anagogical readings are meant to strengthen our hope. Um, So let's look at a moral reading and an anagogical reading. Um, Okay, so I'll read the the passage, um, and then uh, Lewis's comment on it in a letter to Mary Willis Shelburne. This is is beautiful. (laughs) While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. And of course, the the passage in John mentions Jesus' feet. All right, that's important for Lewis's reading of all of this. This is what he writes in a letter. And uh, what's so remarkable about Lewis is, of course, he wrote so many letters. (laughs) He responded to everybody. Um, And one wonders how he did it, uh, partly with the help of his brother. But He responded to everybody, and the letters are just so rich. Um, And so here's one. This is what he writes The allegorical sense of her great action dawned on me the other day. The precious alabaster box, which one must break over the holy feet, is one's heart. Easier said than done. And the contents become perfume only when it is broken. We break our hearts. On Jesus, and then it becomes perfume, our hearts are broken up upon the rock of Jesus. That's a striking reading, which tells us something about how we should live. Okay, here's the next reading. Um, and 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 Wolf says that this is one of the most striking figural readings in Lewis's whole corpus, or suggests that. She, uh, here's the here's the passage from Revelation two seventeen. To him that overcometh, will I give a white stone and in the stone, a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. This is Lewis from The Problem of Pain. What can be more a man's own than this new name, which even in eternity remains a secret between God and him? And what shall we take this secrecy to mean? Surely, that each of the redeemed Shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Let me just say that again. Each of the redeemed shall forever know and praise some one aspect of the divine beauty better than any other creature can. Why else were individuals created but that God, loving all infinitely, should love each differently? And this difference, so far from impairing, floods with meaning the love of all blessed creatures for one another, the communion of saints. If all experienced God in the same way and returned him in identical worship, the song of the church triumphant would have no symphony. It would be like an orchestra in which all the instruments played the same note. Aristotle has told us that a city is a unity of unlikes, and St. Paul, that a body is a unity of different members. Heaven is a city and a body, because the blessed remain eternally different. A society, because each has something to tell all the others, fresh and ever-fresh news of the my God, whom each finds in him, whom all praise as our God. I mean, it's just amazing, right? We have this special uniqueness that god has bestowed on us and and because of that god loves us in different ways and together all of those ways make something absolutely beautiful which is the church which is heaven which is the body of christ it's it's, it's, it's fantastic and it's all it's all coming from a reading of this stone and it, i mean does that not stir us to hope right in this reality that's that's what this kind of reading does uh, for doubtless and continually successful yet never complete attempt by each soul to communicate its unique vision to all others, and that by, by means whereof earthly art and philosophy are but clumsy imitations that's Lewis's uh, Platonism coming out, is also among the ends for which the individual was created. We are created for this communal uh, beautiful communal uh, vision. Okay, so two beautiful uh, readings. Wolf says that they, they point to Lewis's concept of our vocation, which is not to possess oneself, right? To be an autonomous individual, uh, but to reflect God in the prism or mirror of oneself. That's Wolf. To reflect God in the prism or mirror of oneself. We each reflect uh, varieties of uh, differences about, about who God is. All right, two more points, and then I think, I think we'll be done. Um, image versus interpretation. Um, So Lewis, when he's reading scripture, he puts a premium on the images of scripture and kind of dwelling within the images of the scripture and the story as opposed to exegesis, um, interpretation. He says uh, in one place that given the choice between interpretation, exegesis, and image, you have to trust the image every time. The the images have have their own kind of potency and power. Um, So this is what Wolf says. For the most part, Lewis is more interested in the quality of biblical imagery than in in its interpretation. Biblical stories and pictures, especially, but not only eschatological ones, do not exist to be deciphered, but to be inhabited. That's, I think, the key. Um, and, And a key for really understanding what Lewis is then doing with his own stories, right? He wants to he wants to extend and create his own figurations that you can then um, inhabit, which then point you back uh, uh, to scripture. And so, like when you see yourself in Reepicheep, or you know, then you're then you're inhabiting, it, right? And then it's pointing you back uh, to to something about courage and bravery and um, despite one's size. Okay, so um, of course, such an inha- uh, Inhabitation includes some work of interpretation, but any discursive exegesis, Lewis insists, involves translating into poorer language what God has spoken more perfectly in his own language, whether it be the language of poetry or of history itself. Um, so trust trust the images of scripture, in other words, and indwell uh, those, uh, those images. And then the final point, uh, which I think Um, is probably the most important point, which we haven't really talked about uh, much, uh, but is Lewis's own uh, fictional figurations of scripture. And um, this, I think, is where his his potency and power as a writer primarily lies, the fact that we we want to spend time uh, in Narnia. Um, And that points us back to Um, the King of Kings. Lewis's stories refract through the prism of fantasy that light shines with focused clarity through scripture. Lewis's stories are images of the many forms which God's story with Israel, the church, and creation at large might take in other worlds animated by the same divine goodness. Such stories are far from necessary but neither are they superfluous, as long as images are part of the way we think and understand. We're, we're, image, we're image, image creatures, right? We're creatures that use images, and so these stories, they may not be necessary for salvation, but they encourage us along the way. And so that's, this is my final, final question for the groups. Do I have time? I have two minutes. That's all I need. <laughs> um, so my final question uh, for the groups is... Uh, which of Lewis's stories have, have you found uh, comfort in? Um, which, what, what are your favorite examples of Lewis's figurations of scripture? Um, uh, you know, for example, the last battle is a vision of the second coming or something like that. What are your favorite uh, figurations from Lewis? Okay, last one. All right, we're done. Good job. All right, thank you. You did it. You did it. You did it.